Good morning. Um, if I have not met you, my name is Tristan Kreider, and uh, I'm going to step in for Colton today. He has graciously allowed me to be up here, so thanks a lot, Colton. And um, I am a little anxious. <laughs> and uh, those of you who know me know that we need to get started really quick. <laughs> so let's get going. We are going to be in John 17 today. Uh, and then I'm also going to uh, go to Psalm 19. So if you want to jump into to, uh, those two, put your thumb in uh, <clears throat> Psalm 19. And, but we'll start off in John. And we're going we're gonna to make sure that I've got my stuff working out here. Okay, give me just a second. So in the book of John... In chapter 17, just prior to Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Jesus prays, and he prays for himself. He prays for the disciples who will become the apostles, who will pass on the message and teaching of Jesus, and he prays for you and me, and actually everyone who will hear the word of God from them after that. And so just to put that in context before we begin here, verse, uh, we're going to be in verse 6 through 8 here, and I hope it's on the screen. And good luck if you're running the uh, computer. Follow along. I know I sent a lot of scriptures. We're going to fly through some things today. So John 17, verse 6 through 8, Jesus is praying. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have, rece- and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We're going to jump down to verse 17 through 20 here. And Jesus here is praying for both He begins by praying for the disciples, and then he prays for you and me as well. In verse 17, we'll read verse 17 through 20. Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And if you'll flip over really quickly to um, Psalm 19, and we're going to read it here. I'm going to read it quickly, and we'll talk about it later and come back to it. And Psalm 19 gives several titles for the word of God. And so if you just listen to how it's describing it, we're going to read verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. More Over by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So um, at my house, uh, my kids got a new game. This I think it was this last year. I'm not sure. I think somebody in here might have given it to us, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm 
uh, really regret that because, uh, well, I thought that was fun. It, it, I didn't like the game because the game is called uh, Poetry for Neanderthals. Has anybody ever played that game? Oh, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may know why I don't like it. So uh, my family, we sat down, and uh, it's, it's a word game, so it's kind of like if you ever played Taboo, you've got a certain word on a card, and you have to use words to just get somebody else to say that without actually saying the word. And so it actually comes with a nice uh, bat, you know, a blow-up bat. And so what happens is you actually have to say the word like a Neanderthal. Or I'm sorry, you've got to use one-syllable words like a Neanderthal would use in order to get your team to say the word that you've got on your card. And if you say two syllables or three syllables or you actually say part of the word, then the other team gets to take the bat and whack you on the head. <laughs> and so I thought... I'm going to be awesome at this game. I, I could do this. And, and so we sat down to play one time. And, um, oh, I did, I did not make it very far. I, my temper flared up because I kept on, I, th I thought, oh, I can do this. So, you know, if, you're, if your word is, is bathroom and you've got to get your team to say it, you know, you'd say, uh, room, house. And I used my uh, Neanderthal, you know, accent, whatever that is. House, room, near, living room. And poof, you know, and you're getting hit. So I'm getting beat over the head. And I, it's just one thing after another. I pull out another card and it would happen. So I hate that game. <laughs> and that had very little to do with anything in the sermon, except for that actually made me start thinking about language and the function of language. And, you know, I was, I was actually thinking as, as we prepare to talk about what we're going to talk about today, we're in our Sola Scriptura series. And this is just a three-week series. So last week, Colton was talking about manuscripts. I'll cover that in a second. And then, um, uh, you know, the reliability of the manuscripts. And today we're going to be talking about the Word of God. And, and is it authoritative? What, is it, what does it actually claim to be? And is it authoritative? Um, so we're going to talk about that, and as well as something called sufficiency, which we'll get to later. And so um, as, as thinking about the poetry of for Neanderthal, got me thinking about language and the function of language. And so you know when a child is born and their first experience of entering the world is, uh, into the world is primarily very tactile and kind of and visceral, and it be, a child begins to experience the world or the relationships um, only through, at first, physical sensations of their environment or the people that are around them caring for them. And so... Um, then after physical sensations come the sensation of hearing, and then later taste, and then smell, and then last sight as the baby's eyes develop. And so um, a child's understanding of the people around them, um, can, uh, as they grow, it continues their experience of the world and their connection with the world, and people uh, become... Uh, as they, as they grow, language becomes the primary means of them constructing of their view of the world, their experience of the world. And so if, you know, one is not able to communicate or understand words or communicate words if they can't speak, then they can barely convey their own thoughts and, um, or, or their needs or their emotions. And so language necessarily takes centrality in the development of a child who is fashioned in the image of God. And so then they begin to uh, attach significance and meaning to the words that they're developing and to relationships and to the world around them. And so the, th the 
there's thoughts that are combined with words, and the words are expressed verbally, and at first they're mimicked, and then they're attached to some meaning, and then language becomes the means uh, by which a child is able to comprehend and hopefully articulate physical realities, emotions, and concrete and abstract truths, like math or science or the arts. And so language plays a huge part in that context, and I think it's really miraculous. Um, the way that language develops and the way that kids um, grasp language without, it, it, it just is obviously something that's in their design. And so um, without the facilitation of language, then, then a kid is left uh, disjointed or distant from even the people that are closest to them, unable to communicate with those uh, that, they, that they may be near. And so, um, so all of that to say um, that language is important. And I think that um, as we think about language, it's central to the reality that we experience as image bearers of an omniscient God, a God who is reality and truth in himself who speaks and extends his reality into the physical world through his speech and the power of his word. And surely this God, who is able to do this, and whose image we bear, desires that we would know and that we would hear him. And in fact, he does, because in Psalm 19, the part that we didn't read, um, in that part of the Psalm in 19, creation and the universe and the heavens are personified as one who is pouring forth speech and proclaiming the knowledge, the power, and the divine majesty of God. And the attributes of the invisible God are being revealed through what he has made and that which is visible. And this is often in theology referred to as general revelation because it comes generally to all people. Um, there's nothing compl complicated about that. Everybody is able to experience the creation, and therefore that knowledge, that speech that's pouring forth from it, people perceive it. But after the fall, then the creation actually changed, and so did the communication of the cosmos itself, and the way that that message was interpreted was changed. And so because of this, there's necessarily a need for further revelation than general revelation that just is on display in the universe. And so we're going to get into that. Um, namely, we're going to talk about the Bible and what is it, what does it say it is. And so last week, Colton talked about the, re the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. And so... He talked about textual variance, um, its trustworthiness in comparison to ancient documents. Um, he talked about its consistency um, throughout those uh, numerous manuscripts. And so if you miss that, I really recommend that you go back and you listen to it. Um, it I think it was very faith-building, uh, even if you're a seasoned Christian. And so uh, based on what Colton talked last week, it seems evident that God has flooded the world 
with a physical record in written language containing a message about his divine nature and his will for mankind and his redemptive plan that's expressed in Scripture. Um, But factual, this is one of the things we talked about in our home group, factual evidence doesn't actually produce faith. And so just because the evidence shows it to be more reliable than any other text of antiquity um, doesn't mean that I'm inclined to actually receive it and place my trust in it or allow it to govern my life for that matter. And so what does, it, what does the Bible actually claim to be in and of, of itself? And given the claim that it makes, can it actually stand on its own? And if so, is it necessary in order, is the Bible actually necessary in order to live a life of faith. And if it's necessary in order to live a life of faith, um, is it sufficient enough to actually speak to the issues that we encounter in our lives in the world today? Uh, to direct us in a path that leads toward God? Or can we just rely on the Holy Spirit or dreams and visions and um, other things that you see in the Bible like the Urim and the Thummim? You ever heard those? Nobody really knows what they are. It's okay. Uh, but, you know, the, maybe casting dice or lots are in the same um, context of that. It, it was just a, simply a means by which uh, God communicated th- to um, the Israelites, just like casting lots. I don't recommend that, although I do believe that God is sovereign over those arbitrary things. So, um, and so to answer the question about uh, the reliability, or the uh, the reliability or the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. We're going, to, we're going to get to that in a minute. But I want to look at what the Bible claims to be in a bit. And first, I want to discuss, though, um, the issues that we face even when we approach Scripture. Um, the Bible is composed of what is referred to as the canon of Scriptures. I'm sure that's known to some of you. Um, and the canon is, is a list of books that belong to the Bible, 66 books in total, you can go ahead and play it. I got some music on. It's okay. Um, so, um, so 66 books. And so the term canon actually comes from the Greek word meaning cane or rule or a measuring rod. And it was passed into Christian usage uh, through the early church. And, and it was, it was, the canon was the collection of books that were the norm or the rule or the measure of faith. And so the canon was used uh, uh, as early as the 4th century to refer to uh, definitive, authoritative nature of a body of sacred scriptures, um, which, which necessarily would exclude other writings as well. And so the idea of canon actually didn't even begin there at the early church. Uh, the earliest collection of written words, of the written words of God, were actually way further back than that in the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 31, 18, when meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, God himself wrote on two tablets of stone and the words he had commanded to his people, uh, he said, and, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And again, we read in uh, Exodus 32, Verse 16, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And the tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in in Deuteronomy 10, and they constituted um, 
they, they constituted the covenant between God and his people. And so that was the first canon, the first collection of what was considered to be sacred scriptures that communicated who the nature, uh, the divine nature of God. And so um, this past century, or really, really, really in the past several decades, there's been a great amount of debate and, and really a cultural war going on uh, about the reliability of scripture and about the inerrancy of Scripture, and inerrancy is just the claim that it's without error, or it's incapable of error. And so whether um, there's been a debate about whether or not we can actually trust the Bible, or whether it can be believed, and we've moved from that debate now over to uh, what is called the Bible's sufficiency. And so is it the, when you think about sufficiency, you ask the question, is it actually able to speak with authority about complex psychological issues, um, emotional and cultural issues that we face in the 21st century? Is it too antiquated to have any cultural or moral relevance for us? And does it lack the sophistication that's needed to equip God's people to live in this age, in this era? And so these questions are real. I don't know if you've been asking any of those questions lately, but those are real. And so you and I face them directly and indirectly every single day, maybe every hour. And so the sufficiency the sufficiency, that's really tongue twister, uh, speaking of Neanderthals, um, it's, um, it, it's actually under, it is under attack. It has been under attack. And even in the churches, um, even in churches, it's being, the, the scripture is being set aside for worldly philosophies, scientific theories, psychological and behavioral counseling techniques, uh, political correctness, moral or political ideologies, or a countless other number of popular opinions. And so here at Renewal, we believe, the Bible, we believe in the Bible's sufficiency. Uh, but what do we mean when we say the Bible's sufficient? That means it's an adequate source for all matters of faith, life, and practice. In other words, it, in perfect harmony with the work and power of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a believer, gives us everything we need for life and godliness, as Peter says. In the words of uh, the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by the good necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which Nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations or the Spirit or traditions of men. And so one of our faith statements about Scripture is that we believe the Bible, uh, we believe that the Holy Bible uh, was inspired by God, written by men, and completely free from error. It's a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction and reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes... Within it, the only way of salvation, it will remain to the end of the world and supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and faith and doctrine should be tested. And so, I think it seems uh, in today's world that the average Christian um, assumes that there's something more than Scripture that's needed to help us with life's issues in this modern age in the 21st century. And if you believe that the Bible is inerrant, but that it's not sufficient for faith and living and practice, then you have, then you have a source that's trustworthy 
and with our error that has to be supplemented with something else. We have to add something else to it to make it relevant. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And since we believe it's, it's the only inerrant rule in all matters of faith and life, once you add something to it, it loses its inerrancy or infallibility. So now, something that contains error is added to Scripture in order to aid you in doing something that you feel is necessary in order to follow Christ. But this thing that's necessary to do in order to follow Christ isn't something that God thought to address in the Bible. So, God could get us a Bible without error, but he isn't omniscient enough to have foreseen a major issue that would come up and uh, that he didn't address in the Bible. And so he has, uh, well, he has this in a, uh, pl- he's placed us in a position to look outside of the inerrant Bible to something that does have errors in order uh, to live a life of service to him. So do you see the problem with this? Uh, there's a real threat to undermine the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible. And this happens all the time on a number of issues. Uh, when we think about the nature of a man and woman, marriage, human sexuality, psychology, the stewardship, the stewardship of the environment, finances, church leadership, and a host of other issues that we, we could just rattle off and, and continue naming for hours, okay? So in order to have discussions about the essence of what it means to be God-honoring with our money, or to be a man and woman, or you name the issue, um, we have to go to something more authoritative, because the Bible wasn't sufficient in this area to speak to us. So we listen to other voices to define the issues for us, because God, who created man and woman, or finances and gave us stewardship over the environment or whatever, didn't give us sufficient enough theological understanding about that issue. And so we bring back to the Bible that was deficient, and now we're correcting the deficient Bible. And so we may have thought we were supplementing, adding to the inerrant Bible, but what Actually, we didn't think, uh, oh, sorry, supplementing the Bible that we, uh, that we didn't think was, that we really didn't think was, or we really thought was inerrant. And, sorry, I don't know if that was confusing or not. We're supplementing the Bible that we thought was inerrant, right? And so the next question that follows is, is it even necessary if I have to supplement it? If it isn't sufficient, is the Bible even necessary? So we don't ask psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, scientists, or medics to define the world for us. All of those individuals and all of those disciplines are subordinate to the Word of God. So the question of the sufficiency of Scripture is to question the Bible's very claim about itself. And what is that claim? What does the Bible claim to be in and of itself? Uh, The Bible frequently claims that all the words of Scripture are, in fact, God's words. Thus, 
the Lord, the, or the phrase, thus says the Lord, appears, appears hundred, hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament era, it was recognized as a similar phrase used by magistrates. Thus says the king. Um, in order to preface an edict of a king to his subjects that could not be challenged or questioned, uh, but that was simply just had to be obeyed. And so when the prophet says, thus says the Lord, they're claiming that their words are absolutely authoritative words of God. And so the New Testament term scripture actually comes also, it comes from uh, the Greek term graphi, which means writing and was shorthand for sacred writing, and we get the English word graphite from it. Uh, so uh, high schoolers, we have any high schoolers in here? High schoolers, y'all know what graphite is? You can't use it on, on an iPad, so if you don't know what it is, ask your mom and dad, I bet they know. So um, the, scriptures, the scriptures carried inherent authority since they were considered to be the very words of God, and God spoke and used human agents to write down the words. And Timothy 5.18 uh, says, for script, um, Paul says, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer who is worthy of his wages. And so uh, what happens here? Paul is, uh, Paul is, now, I, I'm sorry, I was talking about the Old Testament there. And, and how the phrase thus says the Lord. But, but here what we have is we have the New Testament passage, and Paul is quoting here two, um, two passages. One is from uh, Deuteronomy 25, and the other is from Luke 10.7. And yet Paul calls both of those Scripture. Um, and so what he's saying is that the gospel, even as early as he uh, was in writing this letter to Timothy, he recognized the gospel as scripture, not as a letter, not as a collection of Luke was a, a, a doctor, and so he wrote down more de different details than the other gospel writers, and so Paul is recognizing them as scripture. And he's saying that both have the qualities that made the Old Testament authoritative. He's equating it with the Old Testament. In 2 Peter, Peter says in uh, chapter 3, six, verse 16, he says, of Paul's letters, he says, uh, as also is are Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which he taught, or which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. In this passage, Peter is actually referring to the words of Paul, who affirmed the gospel as scripture, and Peter calls Paul's writing scripture here. Did you catch that? He says, um, in Paul, of Paul's letters, he says that people will misunderstand and distort them as they do the rest of the scriptures. He's not talking about the Old Testament. Um, in the New Testament, we see constantly that the, uh, the scriptures are personified as speaking with divine authority. And they carry the very weight and authority of God himself. And when quoting the Old Testament passages, 
They use phrases like God said, God says, the Holy Spirit says. And so God and the scriptures are so closely knit that the New Testament writers could speak of scripture saying or doing what it records God say or do. For instance, like in Romans 9, where it says of Pharaoh, Paul quotes here, well, part of at least, Exodus 9. And he says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so, um, the problem is, this, uh, with this scripture, uh, it, the scripture didn't say anything to Pharaoh. Who was actually speaking to Pharaoh there was Moses. But Paul says the scripture says to Pharaoh. And yet, it was Moses speaking. Well, what do we do with that? Well, in Exodus 9.13, it reads, The Lord said to Moses, and then he said, Present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, But for this purpose I have raised you up. So the Lord gave the word to Moses, and Moses gave the word to Pharaoh, and Paul says the scripture spoke to him, meaning that Moses was speaking the word of God to Pharaoh. And so God's word came to Moses, he spoke to Pharaoh, and he was God's mouthpiece, his representative. Though it was the words of man, to Pharaoh it was the word of God. And when he spoke, they were absolutely divinely authoritative and revealing by the word, uh, revealing by that word the sovereign power of God over creation and history, if you know the rest of the story. And so the scripture, um, or maybe at this point you're saying, um, well, last week Colton gave us some hard evidence that the records and the manuscripts that we have are really reliable. But now you're just saying that uh, we should accept the Bible as the words of God just because it says it's the word of God. Yes, I am. In fact, let's go a little further with that. It is true that the claims of Scripture are, they're self-attesting. It's attesting of itself, testifying of itself that it is the word of God. Um, And Sure, the Bible's accuracy about nature or morality or ethics or science uh, can all be convincing that it's divine in its origin, but the most persuasive reason, at least for me to believe, is uh, its claim and fulfillment of prophecies. Um, The Bible has an internal consistency and a coherency as well that I think testify to its divine authority. It affirms its own authority. It fulfills itself. And so, sorry to disappoint you, but I um, actually can't prove that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, To prove it, you'd have to actually appeal to an expert and an authority greater greater than itself. And so, such such as a scientific truth or logic or human reasoning or historical accuracy, um, but, but then you've assumed that the thing you're appealing to to be a higher authority than God's word, and um, you're, you're appealing to that, and you're, you're assuming that that is more reliable and true than the authority that you're testing. 
And so the word of God would be insubordinate to that authority, proving itself not to be the word of God. And so this is actually just really a circular argument. Um, and so maybe you're thinking, it's just going in a circle. The word of God says it's so the, the word of God, therefore I should just accept it. Um, and so we do believe that Scripture is the word of God because it claims to be. It shows itself to be. And we can't prove it. And it's true, uh, it's not necessarily true that this is actually an invalid argument. Um, an absolute authority has to appeal to the same authority for proof. Otherwise, that authority would not be the highest authority any longer. Um, and so, how is somebody convinced that it's the Word of God? Well, I don't think there's any amount of historical evidence or logic reason that can convince anybody that the truth of the Bible is, is the Word of God. And the reality is, um, uh, this, I think this reality is only received by receiving the person of Jesus, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. In um, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, Paul talks about uh, imparting in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so he goes on and he talks in uh, 2 Corinthians, and he talks about the weapons of warfare, and he says, uh, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against, according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion, opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every captive, every thought captive to obey Christ. The fortresses that Paul is talking about are not fortresses of stone, but of thoughts. And Paul shifts from, if you notice, from fighting those fortresses to taking captives, which seems like he went from defense to offense. And now he's taking the thoughts captive so that they can be um, captive only to obedience to Christ. And so um, the Bible does claim to be the word of God. And we believe that it also is the inspired word of God. It's written by men, but it's completely free from error in its original language. As we read last week, they are the words of men whose authorship is attributed to God as they were carried about by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Scripture, we see at times, is expressed as the very Word of God. When a man speaks, they speak the Word of God. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, 18, where it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We see it again, speaking of David, 
In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And we see it again in Jeremiah 30, verse 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. And so when God communicates to and through prophets and writers of the Old Testament, he uses human words to convey a divine message. Those words, God says, are my words, the words of Yahweh. And while there are instances where there's, there's actually literal dictation going on where the Word of God is being written down as they hear it, like, for instance, John in Revelation when he's told to write something. I think this is more of meant to be taken as metaphorical um, and that these are the words of God that God wanted to be spoken, that God wanted to be written. And they were inspired by the Holy Spirit so that the words of Scripture are the very words both of God and simultaneously the words of human authors who retained their own writing styles, vocabularies, and personality. And yet at the same time, it's said of each of those individuals uh, and authors that, that their words were Yahweh's words, my words. In um, 2 Peter, we actually see something very similar like you would see with the prophets where Peter is, is, um, is writing a letter and he refers to the teaching of the apostles, which would be him, as Scripture. And so Peter actually equates the value and authority that the Old Testament has with the apostles. That seems a little bit arrogant, doesn't it, Peter? She's saying, your brothers over here, they got all the words of God, right? And yet he does that. Here's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your prophets, or sorry, through your apostles. So remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, the teachings of Jesus were the word of God presented through the apostles. And so God's words were never just for profit either. God's words were always to the prophet, but for the people. Delivered to them and delivered through them. And I think as we... I don't, how much time do I have? I should probably ask that question since we've... Oh, okay, okay. All right, let's, we're going to race here, okay? Um, so um, I wanted to take a look at Jesus' view of Scripture because Jesus has an astounding reverence for Scripture. Um, let's see. Well, we already read John 17, 7, where he says, sanctify them in truth. 
and your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart, to be holy, and it refers to God's work of conforming a person to his image. And so Jesus, um, Jesus was saying that the word of God is the means or the mechanism by which every aspect of our lives is made holy. And not God's word in something else, but God's word. And in fact, Jesus here uses, when he's describing God's word, you would think he says, um, sanctify them in truth. Your word is true, but he doesn't do that because true is an adjective. He uses a noun. Your word is truth. And so it is the ultimate standard, according to Jesus, of truth. It's the sole reference point that every other claim has to be measured. And it's the final authority. Jesus affirmed uh, not only the inspiration of the scriptures, but he also extended, uh, but also the, the extent of their authority, the scriptures' authority. Because Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all of it, all is accomplished. So it's not even the smallest minutia um, is insignificant to Jesus. It will all be fulfilled because it is the word of God and it is true and it will prove itself to be true. The, God, the word of God is lasting. It's fixed, it's durable, it's established and it stands forever. Matthew 24, 35 said, says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my, this is Jesus speaking, my words will not pass away. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And God's word is eternal because its author is eternal. It's also truthful. It's true and without error. In Psalm 119, which is a great if you just want to read that this week, it's all about the word of God. Um, it, it's very long, so break it up. Three a day, three sections a day, by the way. Um, it says, But you are near, O God, and all your commandments are true. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The word of God is pure. It has no falsehood. It has no empty flattery. And the speech of the Lord is always pure, and there's no hint of deceit or evil in it. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in a furnace seven times over. And they're also sufficient and complete. They're sufficient for everything that we need in this life to live a godly life in Christ and to do his good works. They, it is complete. And the verse we started with today is what I'll end with. It gives three things in each statement, there is a title for the Word of God. There is an attribute of the Word of God. And then there's the effect that the Word of God has. It is effectual. It is powerful. Listen, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rule of the Lord is true, 
and righteous altogether. Moreover, but more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. The biggest threat to humanity in the world today is not war, food shortages, and hunger. It's not inflation. The biggest threat is deception. The greatest weapon that we have against deception and error is truth. And there's only one source for that truth, and that is Scripture. When Jesus returns, John describes him in this way, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 